Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Vudu. Vudu is a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy and over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad-supported on-demand device. Enjoy everything from the latest Hollywood blockbusters to your favorite indies without subscriptions or contracts. Man, Voodoo's been there for a hot minute with us on The Rewatchables, and you can watch a lot of the movies that we've talked about uh, on Voodoo. We've also got ones that are pretty, I think, pretty hot candidates for Rewatchables down the line. One that I will be advocating for, personally, is Drive. That's on Voodoo right now. Uh, we also, obviously, we did Jerry Maguire a while ago, um, so you can check that out on Vudu. Head to vudu.com slash rewatchables to sign up and start watching today. That's vudu.com slash rewatchables. Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Universal Orlando Resort. Dodge evil villains. Defend the Earth and face a fire-breathing dragon at Universal Studios Florida. Enter the land of superheroes, beasts, and magical creatures at Universal's Islands of Adventure and live the carefree island life at Universal's Volcano Bay, the first ever water theme park. When you stay at Universal Orlando Hotel, the thrills of three amazing theme parks are outside your door. Plus, hotel guests get exclusive benefits that make every day of your stay even more awesome. The newest Universal Orlando Hotel is now open. Enjoy extra affordable rates on standard rooms and suites that sleep up to six people at Universal's endless summer resort, Surfside Inn and Suites. So wake up where the action is. Plan your Universal Orlando vacation at universalorlando.com. Fantasy. The people wanted in glorious bastards rewatchables. Oblige them. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Ray. And I need me eight soldiers going to be dropped into France dressed as civilians. We're going to be doing one thing, one thing only. Killing Nazis. And the German will be sickened by us. And the German will talk about us. And the German will fear us. Nazi ain't got no humanity. And they need to be destroyed. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps. And I want my scalps. Nine, 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 nine. Sound good? Yes, sir! My name is Chris Ryan, and I am joined by two glasses of Dairy Farm Fresh Milk. The Enzo Gorlami and Antonio Margaretti of The Ringer, Sean Fennessy and Mallory Rubin. And we are here to talk about Quentin Tarantino's 2009 masterpiece, Inglorious Bastards. It's one of my favorite movies. It's one of Sean Fennessy's favorite movies. It's one of Mallory Rubin's favorite movies. It is p- perhaps the most controversial pick we've ever had on the rewatchables in terms of how it's divided opinion among critics. And we'll obviously get to that. Uh, this movie contains multitudes. I've hosted a few rewatchables. This is the hardest one I've ever had to wrap my mind around because mm-hmm. there's so many different ways to come at it. You can look at it through the lens of Tarantino. You can look at it through the lens of the movie stars that are in the movie, the movie stars that were made by this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can obviously talk about the real-world implications and the historical implications of the movie. What about Big Dairy? You, we can talk about what it means— to milk production in France and in the early strudel. 40s and strudel. 
We're going to talk about the food. We're going to talk about all the fine details, which is what I think this movie is really made up of. But let's start here. Let's just get your initial sort of like big, big, big picture feelings about Inglorious Bastards. Sean, let's start with you. Rewatching it has me questioning whether it's the best Tarantino movie, which is a, seems like a crazy thing to say in the in the afterglow of Pulp Fiction and, and Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill. But wow. Yeah. Wow. What a I said yesterday to someone that it's I think it's two hours and thirty minutes and it feels like it takes place in about ten minutes. Yeah. And when it yes. when it ended, I was like, whoa, let's start it again. Let's yes. go. And the things that I love about it, I'm sure we'll talk about at length here, but combination of action adventure comedy stardom mm-hmm. historical reimagining, which is something that I don't find offensive and I think will be a topic of conversation here. And a kind of swashbuckling movie making quality. It yes. kind of takes guts to take them to make a movie like this. And I loved thinking about someone spending 10 years and, and Tarantino spent almost 10 years mm-hmm. trying to put this movie together to, to, to finish off something this ambitious. So I just had a real wow response rewatching it. Yeah, I think that Tarantino would agree with you. I think that Tarantino <laughs> viewed this movie as the culmination of a lot of things that he had been working towards. It was something, like you mentioned, it's something he worked on for 10 years. Eli Roth, who's in the film and worked with, has worked with Tarantino over the years, talked about working with him on Grindhouse. And Grindhouse was kind of a party and it obviously was received poorly, both commercially and to some extent critically, although... I will definitely just rewatch Grindhouse if it's on if it's on the TV. But um that's a pretty cool movie and this is a masterpiece. Yeah, and he's he talked about watching Tarantino work on Bastards was like watching like a general conduct an army. Mal, what do you what are your feelings about this movie? My feeling about the movie is also probably my favorite line from the movie. That's a bingo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just so thrilling to watch from start to finish. I really, I found myself thinking about what what Sean just said as well, watching it where it feels like it takes place in the span of a moment, even though it's so complex and there are so many moving parts and parts within the moving parts. And you get to the end and it doesn't feel like any time has passed at all, even though literal years are supposed to have passed in the film. And while it is complicated and controversial, it also rewards repeat viewing maybe as much as any other movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, not to not to jump ahead to most rewatchable scenes, but you could basically say the movie. Yeah. And especially because it's divided up into chapters, it really lends itself to thinking about it in these clusters that exist as these standalone masterpieces, but also are totally inextricable from each other. Yeah, and even just in watching it a couple of times again, I clearly had lost sight and maybe maybe never even truly realized what the structure of the movie was, which Mm -hmm. is two dueling plots to kill Hitler. That is what the movie is. In the same movie theater. Yes, in the same (laughs) movie theater. But ultimately, you know, these two separate arcs of... The Shoshana plot and the Bastards plot. Exactly. Those two things kind of working in tandem... Because the movie is this series of brilliantly staged set pieces that feel seamless, even though I think it'll be very easy for us to kind of demarcate the 10 or 12 mm-hmm. favorite scenes and moments and lines of dialogue. It's You know you've got a great movie when the sort of the plot becomes a little bit hazy yeah. in a way. Yeah. That, that, that seems kind of counterintuitive, but I think some of the best movies that we've talked about on here, we have to kind of refresh ourselves to remember what the movie's really about because there's so much about it that we like revisiting that is – 
almost tangential to where the story is going. Mm-hmm. This movie is, it's, it's, it's in a lot of ways more linear than almost anything Tarantino had done up to that point. Um, obviously, he had been noted for his virtuistic manipulation of chronology within storytelling, his narrative kind of gymnastics that he would do. Pulp Fiction obviously is, is sort of the, the pinnacle of that. This is a relatively straightforward story. And it's drawn from relatively straightforward material, man and men on a mission, World War II movies that he loved, like Dirty Dozen, right. like Big Red One, Guns of Navarone. So it's a it's a pretty straightforward World War II movie that is shot entirely like a Western almost. It's uh, this widescreen technicolor um, visual palette. That's especially true in the opening segment, um, Once Upon a Time in a Nazi-Occupied France. The other segments are The Inglorious Bastards, A German Night in Paris, Operation Kino, which uh, you can just play that at my funeral as <laughs> my favorite piece of filmmaking ever, and Revenge of the Giant uh, Face. Um, you know, I wanted to touch on—I um, think the thing that I love about this movie the most is it's, uh, it is the— the crowning achievement of Tarantino as a dialogue writer in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. what's amazing about that is that most of the movie is not in English. Yeah, only about 30%. Yeah, and there's not a lot of the same kind of pop culture references or metatextual references. A lot of the references that happen in the movie are visual or they are references to historical things like directors, J.W. Pabst or mm-hmm. Lenny Riefenstahl or— um, yeah. The German know, cinema deep cuts. Right. The characters yeah. are a lot of them are named after whether it's exploitation, Italian horror directors or Hollywood stars. There are all these references, but it's not necessarily about it, that. That doesn't pop up really where the characters are talking. There is a great quote from uh, Jay Hoberman when he reviewed the film. He had a, he uh, he talked he was talking about. The dynamics of the movie, and he referenced Andrew Saris, who's another great film critic, and he said, as Andrew Saris described the characteristic Bub, Bud Boddicker Western, and Bud Boddicker is like an incredible Western director. He directed a series of um, of Westerns with Randolph, Randolph Scott, that anybody who's listening to this podcast should check out. Saris described those Westerns as a floating poker game mm-hmm. in which characters, many of whom have assumed false identities, take turns bluffing for their lives. That's what Inglorious Bastards is. Yeah. It is a series of these incredible conversations where the balance of power is tipping back and forth with every line and everything is about translation and everything is about, well, you can't speak Italian, but you can't speak German, but let's speak the kings. And people are pretending to be things that they aren't. And the, the Jew hunter winds up being a, a traitor and, mm-hmm. you know, Hickox, yeah. who's supposed to be this perfect spy, gets blown up by by Hellstrom in the tavern. And there's so many little turns and double moves and feints. And it is a war movie, but the war is happening through conversation, not on battlefields. And that is the thing that I always come back to this movie for. I can't believe how beautifully written it is. And those conversations, even in subtitle, you you know, Christoph Waltz talked about how like Tarantino would come give him notes about his pl- the way he would do a line in German, even though Tarantino couldn't speak German. Mm-hmm. But he would be like, do it like this, do it like that. And Waltz was like, I couldn't believe it. It was really like being in the presence of like a genius, basically. There's, there's a couple of different things to tackle about that. I mean, the first is that there is one character who is not changing persona or is incapable of changing persona, and that's Aldo. And that's Brad Pitt, who is definitely the beating heart of this yeah. movie. I think if 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 Hans Landa is the brain, then then Gorlami. Aldo is the heart. Gorlami. <laughs> um, Gorlami. 
Again? <laughs> every line reading he has in the movie is overplaying it, but is also perfectly movie star. Mm-hmm. And this is my favorite kind of thing. And that's that that's that that idea about not really being able to be anybody other than Aldo the Apache is something that Tarantino and Pitt like, have talked about a lot, that every other character is in a, in a musical chair of the mind, you know, kind of moving mm-hmm. around and moving around and moving around. And he is the person who's on a mission who doesn't have to, who is incapable of faking. And there's something essential about that because there's so many great performances in Christoph Waltz, who I think we'll talk about a lot, who mm-hmm. is more or less a discovery to American audiences right. with this movie and then won an Oscar for this movie, basically his first American film, was the big takeaway. And a lot of the reviews of this movie were not very positive. No. Right. And they all cited Waltz as the great achievement. And Mm -hmm. everything else is kind of fine. Um, In retrospect, I think Waltz is great. But having seen Waltz do the Waltz thing for the last 10 years, I'm like, oh, he actually has like, he doesn't just play one instrument. He plays one note. And it's this very, it's elocution first. It's very, it's over-performative. Yeah. He's a ham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's perfect for Tarantino, but if you see him elsewhere, it loses its luster a little bit. But Pitt <laughs> is, is, is coming alive to me every time I watch it. I, the choices that he's making are actually more interesting and more fun the more I see him. That's really interesting because even though he is in charge of the bastards, in charge of executing one of those t- two plots to... You know, the, the movie is is ultimately an al- alternate history about how to kill Hitler and, yeah. and the Nazis. You is this not is this not how it happened? <laughs> it is not. Shit. You don't really think of him as a foil for any of the other characters because he is so specific and so unique. And now, obviously, all of the other personas are very specific too by design. But to Chris's point about the nature of the game, everybody else is. You know, if you think about that that Hans uh, speech in the opening dairy farm sequence about how what allows him to succeed is the fact that he can think like his enemy, can think like mm-hmm. other people, can assume not only a different role out there in the world as he's interacting with other people, but assume a different role inside of his own mind. Yes. And so many of the characters are trying to do that, the, not only with each other, but with themselves. Yeah. And Pitt's just like, I am going to rock this tuxedo blazer <laughs> and look amazing. But they, he, I mean, this is the kind of thing that separates Tarantino. I, this is why I get annoyed when people are like, oh, Quentin's just like a, a montage of references and mm-hmm. shit he learned in a video store. It's like, you don't do the doubling that he does in this movie without being truly one of the great dramatists of his time. Like the, the, even just like subtle hints of, uh, Landa talks about coming out of the Alps. The Fuhrer brought yes. him out of the Alps to do this job. Aldo Rain says, I came out of the Smoky Mountains to kill Nazis. They have the same goal. They've come from the same sort of far-off place. They were, it almost sounds like they were reluctantly drafted into service, but now that they're there, they are single-minded about their pursuit, which is to destroy the other side. And in that way, they are very much representative, historically, of the frontiersman attitude of the Americans— and the perception that Germans had of themselves or that the Reich had of itself as this clean-lunged, exercising Alpine man who would, who would conquer Europe and bring it back to the Aryan like blood, you know, uh, blood that it, it had originated from. That was their whole concept. Which brings us to the complicated and I think fascinating question about whether Tarantino had any right to make this movie in the first place. Yeah. Sean alluded to the critical dissension about you know, whether or not 
this movie was good. <laughs> you know, obviously there's some where it's like Manola Dargis who basically was like, this was boring. Mm-hmm. Then there are a lot of reviews that essentially thought it was morally bankrupt. Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote uh, mm-hmm. a scathing review about it, comparing Quentin Tarantino to Sarah Palin uh, and comparing the film to Holocaust denial. Um, Daniel Mendelson wrote about wrote about it in Newsweek. David Denby was particularly harsh on the movie in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Uh, our boy Roger Ebert. Loved it. Four stars. Four stars. But What's up, Raj? 88% Rotten Tomatoes, I think, is both low for my estimation for the movie and also not indicative of how passionately people dislike the film. So let's mm-hmm. just reckon with that a little bit. I know that doesn't really, like, feed into the rewatchability of the movie, but we're going to spend the rest of the podcast doing that. Well, and Matt, I think the way these movies age matters. We're talking about it was like, what's age the best, what's age the worst, which is such a, like, a fraught category every time we try to talk about these kinds of things, but... This is a movie that I think gets better. And the further you get away from the anxiety of the critical conversation about who can and can't make what, the better the movie gets because it is still – it's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and whether it's a sort of a, a politically correct fantasy, I mean probably not. But it is, it is imagined and I think for as many people are saying that it was hurtful to them, there are just as many who are saying it was empowering and exciting and emotionally fulfilling to see – not just Hitler come to the end that he comes to in this movie, which is violent, shocking, brutal, and probably... Um, cathartic. Yeah, cathartic. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's also just other aspects of telling the story. You know, mm-hmm. the, w- it's notable to me, and I don't know if I totally realize this, but Hitler already knows it's a wrap in this movie. He already says the Americans are on the beach. Yeah. Like, we, we already yeah. know that the war is... He already knows the war is over. And the, the whole concept of this sort of performative last gasp between Goebbels and Hitler and putting on this big show in France even though they know their goose is cooked, feels notable to me. And mm-hmm. it feels it, – it's interesting that critics didn't really see that at the time and kind of reckon with that. Yeah, well, there are there are multiple different issues that people raised at the time and, and still continue to raise. You know, you, you mentioned the, the Daniel Mendelssohn review, and, and he cited this idea about turning Jews into Nazis mm-hmm. and how wrong that felt, right? And then there's – the question of taking Hitler and taking the Nazis and taking the atrocities and incomparable horror of the Holocaust and and switching it to basically this, like, cartoonish, yeah. overly—I mean, we're talking over the course of this entire podcast about how fun it is to watch this movie. So kind of, like, fun, popcorny. You're literally at the cinema as it's happening, both in your home yeah. or at the movie theater and in the movie— cartoonish depiction of this real world horror. And there's a Jeffrey Goldberg piece from the time in The Atlantic where where he he just said a, a Jewish director could not have made this movie, just could not have made this movie. And so whether that means a non-Jewish director shouldn't have, you know, to to go back to the the prompt yeah. from you for for this discussion, is also uh, worth discussing. But I, I think that idea about whether how as a Jewish person your relation and I should say I am a Jewish person and my grandparents are Holocaust survivors and the relationship that you have to that history is just is not a thing you can escape from in your life yeah I mean I don't know my my grandfather on my mother's side liberated camps for the Red Cross during the World War II my grandfather my father's side flew in bombers during World War II for England like this is Mm -hmm. it's very much like if you talk to anybody over the age of 
35 or 40, in all likelihood, they have some sort of like connection that they can remember with their their grandparents that has something yep. to do with World War II. They will remember something about that time. Um, I think that there's a really interesting debate. We don't necessarily have to have it here, but the differences between, say, Inglorious Bastards and Schindler's List is one way of looking at Saving it. Saving Private Ryan. But Saving Private mm-hmm. Ryan. Yeah. They're that both, to me is the comparison point. But they're both movies. They're both an artist's depiction and choice about what he's going to say about war. Now, Spielberg was very straightforward about saying war is hell, and the people who went through it and survived it did so for a greater good, and they should be cherished as heroes. I think that that was ultimately what I took away from Saving Private Ryan, even if it went it delved into the levels of PTSD that these people experienced and the, the horrors that they saw. It was essentially like a coronation of the golden generation. Uh-huh. I don't think necessarily that Tarantino is making fun of that or lampooning it or anything. What I think he is doing is this is part of the third phase of his career where he is essentially expressing historical rage through fantasy. And Mm -hmm. you may not think he has the right to do that. You may not think he has the right to use the language that he uses when he does that. But that's his project. I mean, that is his his sort of maybe outsider perspective that he had as a kid growing up, his obviously deep empathy for the stories of history. Mm-hmm. And he is using that primal like reaction people have to these histories and people who live through these histories had. My grandfather's life was never the same when he got back from the war. You right. know what I mean? Like he, yeah. he, he, he was completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think to, the, what Tarantino is doing here, it's fun. It's, it's, you know, we can talk all about like the great moments of it, but what this really is is an expression of rage. It's rage almost as wish fulfillment. Yeah, I think that there's something that is a little lost when we're talking about things like this, which is that the while World War II was happening, American movies were myth-making about World War II. Yeah, that, sure. That was so in were real German time. movies right. about the yes. right. Yeah. Yes, like Read Five Came Back, Mark Harris's book. That book is about the Hollywood filmmakers who went out to make films during the war effort. Capra, Houston. Yes, to create a story of what American heroism was. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this is new. Frederick Zoller, the character that Daniel Brühl plays, Mm -hmm. the German who who killed 300 uh, Allied soldiers, is based on Audie Murphy, who's an American hero who became an American movie star. He did a very similar thing where he fought back German forces, fought back over 100 people over the course of two days, and then they made a movie about his life in the 1950s. Was that movie letter perfect about what happened to Audie Murphy that day? Probably not. He then went on to become a star of Westerns. Mm -hmm. Westerns also tend to take liberties with the history of how the American West was settled. Yes. That's the whole point of movies is we reimagine and recontextualize our own history. So the concept of who does and doesn't have the right to do this is is certainly fraught and particularly so when you're talking about something like the Holocaust, which is yeah. the most severe tragedy in, in, in the history of, of modern civilization. But movies operate in a different valence. They just – the way – who can and can't make movies? Everyone can can make a movie and they can reimagine what we saw in the world because every movie does that. Movies are not yeah. documentary necessarily. There's also – you know, he's he's imagining a world in which like – Art can wage a war on the on the bar- barbarians. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that so much of this yeah. movie is about the power of taste and aesthetics. I mean, that's why I'm so drawn to Shoshona as a character in the movie yeah. is because she believes that 
that you know, she believes basically in that that film could save the world, mm-hmm. you know, and and you know it might seem insane to talk about that in this context, but that's why we talk about movies all the time is because we have this incredible deep passion for the power of movies sure. to transform society. Yeah, and to find purpose, yeah. to give you purpose, and to find something in art that allows you to unlock something about the real world and about your life. And that's what the best art art does for anyone, whether you are consuming it or making it. Mm -hmm. I'm French. We respect directors in our country. (laughs) I mean, that's... Iconic meta moment in the movie. That says it all, you know, (laughs) is if if Quentin Kundofsky... And that's the thing is, we're all speaking very passionately about the most difficult aspect of this movie. It's also notable that this is just a bang-on fucking fun movie. It's Uh just a really fun way to spend two and a half hours. And... It's amazing that he chose to make what could be his most fun movie inside of the most complex moment in 20th century history. Uh, I'll do some stats and then we can get to some categories. Okay, Okay. so Inglorious Bastards came out August 21st, 2009. It had premiered originally at Cannes. Uh, It wound up making $320 million in global box office, and it was considered something of a comeback for Tarantino. So basically, Tarantino finishes Kill Bill 2. He's been working on the uh, Inglorious Bastards For script. a decade. Yeah, but, and, and there's an idea that he might do it as a miniseries. It's it's getting so long. It's going all these different directions. And uh, he winds up kind of spending the post-Kill Bill period in, in a bit of a wandering stage. You know, he directs an episode of CSI, acts in a Takashi Miike movie. He does grind. He does the Grindhouse movie with Robert Rodriguez, which was we talked about was not received particularly well. So he's kind of floating out there. I don't remember particularly whether or not anybody was like Tarantino's a rap. I think we all were pretty much like whenever he's he's just the best director in my lifetime. So I think it's notable that throughout all of this, he had been saying that this movie was coming. Yes, yes. He's been talking publicly since about 2001 about his Men on a Mission movie, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, and there's and there was even I think parts of I don't know whether Killer of Crows was ever in Inglorious Bastards. But that was his his movie idea about black soldiers during World War II that he talked about even after Inglorious Bastards. Anyway, it was a huge success, $320 million, eight Oscar nominations for picture, director, supporting actor, original screenplay, sound editing, sound mixing, cinematography, and editing. I will mention that uh, this was the last film Sally Menke was able to edit for Tarantino. She passed away. She's an incredible film editor um, and worked on a bunch of his stuff before. Uh, the film only won supporting actor for Christoph Waltz. Uh, that year, the Best Picture nominees were uh, Hurt Locker, Avatar, District 9, The Blind Side, Precious, A Serious Man, and Education, Up, Up in the Air, and Glorious Bastards, and Hurt Locker won. Catherine Bigelow won for Best Director over Tarantino, James Cameron, Lee Daniels, and Jason Reitman. But Christoph Waltz won Best Supporting Actor. Movies used to be so good. That's a, <laughs> that's a great... <laughs> <laughs> Great list of best pictures. Remember nominees. 10 years ago and how good movies were? Yeah. When we had The Hurt Locker and Avatar as the two movies that were in the lead and Inglorious Bastards didn't even have a chance. I know. It was so <laughs> it was just wild. Um, Shit. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and then we can get into the categories. Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. This is definitely a podcast you cannot miss. Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99, is a pod about the iconic music festival and how its successes and failures left its mark on history. The festival took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults, and it was set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly, 
It was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. But Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else like Hannibal Burris's Handsome Rambler and our spinoff, The Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download, and in addition to the can't-miss originals, you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one, The Rewatchables. Whether you're into music, TV, film, comedy, sports, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash rewatch. And after that, it's only $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash rewatch for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash rewatch. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. Let's do this most rewatchable scene. This is one of the this hardest ones I've ever had. <laughs> this is really tough. Uh, for one thing, this, scene, this movie is essentially made up of five 20 to 30 minute scenes. Uh, so that's tough. There's also the fact that um, it has three of my favorite scenes of the century in it. So mm-hmm. it's hard to like pick pick a favorite out of your kids there. Here are the ones I have, though. Everyone the, has a favorite kid, just the FYI. La Louisiane Tavern uh, with yep. Fassbender, Kruger, and uh, Hellstrom. Landa at the dairy farm, yep. the opening 20 minutes. Yep. Hickok's meeting Fennec and Churchill. <laughs> Shoshona's lunch with Goebbels and Landa and the strudel and specifically her reaction to Landa leaving mm-hmm. when she lets out that, like, stifled cry. Uh, and just randomly I threw in there uh, cat people, the cat people scene of her putting on the makeup and the dress and getting ready for that night. Obviously, there's not a lot of Aldo in there. Like, I'm sure we could put in Aldo's speech. We could put in any number of things, but I want to open it up to the floor. But those are the nominees that I had so far. I want to talk about each of those scenes a little Let's bit with it. you guys. But I do, I have to say, the introduction of the Bear Jew yes. has to be on I, this I have list. That, I have that on there I as well. almost felt, I felt like just like weird being like, <laughs> that's the oblige him scene. Actually, when we're all tickled to hear you say that. Quite frankly, watching Donnie beat Nazis to death is close we ever get to going to the movies. Donnie! Yeah! Guy's German here wants to die for country. Oblige him. That whole sequence, the conversation that that Aldo has with the German soldier, and then the knocking in the tunnel with mm-hmm. the bat, yeah. and the build up to that, and then the emergence, and the that major musical needle drop that when Donnie Donowitz emerges, and then the kind of like high laughter that you get when he starts talking in that stupid Boston accent. He's yeah. literally doing a Ted Williams yeah, yeah. impression. You guys are stepping on what he's the worst. <laughs> okay. But it's it's but, Eli Roth's grasp of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Teddy fucking ball game! <laughs> Teddy fucking Williams knocks it yeah. out of the path! Fenway Pack on his feet for Teddy fucking ball game! He went yacht on that one! On the fucking lands down street! You. Is that how you say it? He goes yad on Lansdowne Street. Uh, so that, yeah, that, that has to be on the list. I have that on my list too. And then I mean, you get the the carving, the the butts forehead carving reveal in that in that sequence too. Yes. I had everything that that you had, Chris. And then I also had the the bear juice first kill, even though it's super super short and is is not really a full scene. But the the Stiglitz killing spree montage oh, yeah. is a special kind of delight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the heavy metal riff introducing him, <laughs> Samuel yeah. Jackson. Yeah. I really over. love that. And then you know the Hans the Hans flip. Yeah. At the end, yep. that entire that, that entire sequence, the politicking, the bluffing, the 
flips within the flips and what Aldo is doing and how he's going to get his revenge there and mm-hmm. pursue his vengeance even at, you know, what, what what's going to happen, right? Just a chewing out. That's it. Just a chewing out. I've been chewed out before, so I had that as well. And then, you know, obviously everything, just the, the theater carnage. Can we talk a little bit Wait, about— I got one more. About, I got one more. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, we got to go through all of them. The Gorlami, the, the introducing <laughs> my three Italian compatriots Margaretti. to Londa. Yeah. <laughs> Dominic de Coco. <laughs> Those are <laughs> that These whole sequence guys too. With their like Godfather hands is <laughs> just unreal. So funny, and that is the kind of scene that takes us out of the weighty historical stuff mm-hmm. and just lets us laugh and loosen up and yeah. enjoy ourselves. But what what like what scene? What did you want to talk about first? I like, want to talk about the tavern scene. Yeah, because okay. it's it's this, I, I, it, the tavern scene and the and the opening twenty minutes are my two favorite parts of the movie. The tavern scene is my favorite movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> is is essentially. Uh, just he makes a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's first, rope. It, it, it's it's like one of the great bar scenes I've ever seen. Like just like people hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that almost two thirds of it are dedicated to them playing heads up, uh, <laughs> and you're just like, hey, these were people just like smarter back then in the '40s, where they were like like a random soldier is just like I can describe Marco Polo. No, this is a Quentin Tarantino invention yeah, going on I'm here. Sure. This is the, yeah. I'm clever. I'm every character and I'm very clever. A nice bit of half-assed internet research that I will steal for here is that the King Kong scene with uh-huh. Hellstrom is Tarantino's theory about King Kong That's that he right. shared with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was good. It's too bad he couldn't do his Top Gun theory that he that he had in Body Resource and Motion. It might have been a bit anachronistic. Whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the the way in which he builds tension in that scene um the feeling that you get when hellstrom interrupts and he's in the he hasn't been seen yet and he stands up with his boot of beer that is a chilling moment and it's everything it's basically a comedy of manners everything there is about how long they have to stay well you know i mean if you came to meet me at a bar you can't leave without having a drink and then it's like you're am i intruding and then am i joking about being mad about intruding and all yeah. this stuff about accents well and you you were talking earlier about this idea of the poker game and being at the table right and it's like it's literally a card game at the table and it's just about how many times they can each up the ante mm-hmm. until someone calls their bluff with a pistol pointed at the testicles. Yeah, and then or, or three pistols pointed <laughs> yeah. at four balls. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got this incredible moment with the, the hand gesture for the scotches. That's right. When, so the, the whole the whole Fassbender performance is crazy. Yes. The whole performance in this movie. He's a person who is born in Germany, mm-hmm. raised speaking German, moves to Ireland, mm-hmm. and then learns English. But he has to portray a person born in England mm-hmm. who learns German and then has to affect this very strange Pitzpalu-esque accent that he has invented. Yes. So imagine the mental gymnastics mm-hmm. that Fassbender, the actor, has to do while doing all of also, this. Also, not for nothing, he tried out for Landa like That's five right. times and yep. like was heartbroken they didn't get it. And they give him Hickox. I, I'm, I'm very interested to talk about this movie, maybe in Casting What If, yeah, sure. yeah. with him as Landa. Yes. And where, the, where their careers go if they do that. But I, I think I, this isn't the first time I saw Fassbender, but this is the first time I went, who the fuck is that movie? He had star? done Hunger already, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The, the so that Steve was McQueen sort of movie. his big. Oh my god, this dude is maybe the next Daniel Day Lewis. Yes. And then he does this, and you're like, well, this guy could also be the next James Bond. Well, he he talks. His character is Trevor Howard, and he looks like Sean Connery. And that's what an amazing, smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. most dashing guy in the room, but also 
pretentious film critic. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciates a good scotch. Appreciates a good scotch. (laughs) I love the way alcohol is deployed in the scene, too. You know, you have the German boot of beer. Yeah. You have the German sh- soldiers celebrating Maximilian's birth with their schnapps. She's drinking champagne. They're in France. Then you, of course, get the Englishman receiving the scotch in yeah. the moment where he gives himself away. It's great. Yeah, the the moment where he says, Well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking to kings. Oh, my God, it's perfect. Oh, my God, dude. That's like a line that a screenwriter probably waits like his entire life to And write. in the performance, yeah. his his affectation, his whole manner changes. He, know, he knows oh, yeah. the second he does the hand. Yes. It's over. He he realizes that the other, and they, and of course, Hallstrom knows too. He knows that he's going to, and that's the great part about that line where he's like, no matter what happens to everybody else in this bar, you and I are not We're leaving. not getting out. Yeah. I think we got to give some love to August Deal too as Dieter Hellstrom, which yeah. is the most evil Nazi name I've ever heard in my life, uh, who gives a hell of a performance. Yeah. Um, He's great. Going nose to nose with Fassbender here. And also the overconfidence of Bridget von Hammersmark's character, I think, too, where her insistence upon, no, we have to stay, despite the fact that the soldiers are like, this is not okay. Yeah. No, this is not going to go well. They knew. The minute they go down, down those stairs. They knew before they go downstairs. He's just like, who the hell calls a meeting in a basement? This is insane. Well, I'm curious. Like, do you guys think that the function of that is to at least force the audience for a few moments longer than it is, is maybe necessary to, to question her loyalty, just like the, the actor or the characters are. Yeah, I, I think it's also just that it, it, it's, it really hammers home, you know, when they ask Fassbender, like, who were you before the war? And he says, I was a film critic. And Van, Von Hammersmark is an actress. And, you know, it's presumably all these people had jobs before World War II. I and mean, that was a huge part about this was that these were not uh-huh. All trained soldiers who or lifelong soldiers. These were people with normal everyday lives who were drafted into this war on both sides. So she might not have a good idea about where to meet. She might be like, sure. I just need to pick right. a bar where I know the bartender and I hope and then it was like, what does she say when she's on the operating table? It's she's like, either I set a trap for you or it was a terrible coincidence, but it can't be both things. Right. And that that I think was sort of it's that that probably happened in the war. Thousands of times where it was just like if we had walked around this corner any other minute of the day, we would not have been attacked by this sniper. But we were, you know, you're absolutely right, too, that this is just a Hitchcock movie and the ticking clock nature of the whole encounter is just so ratcheting tension the way that he does. is just amazing. This is this is up there. I I don't know if it's better than the opening. So let's do the opening 20 minutes. So this is like and this is also one of the great feelings of, you know, the, the Lights go down. Uh-huh. You get the trailers or whatever, and and then the 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 the, the opening Morricone music starts, and then the, the crazy little like different fonts for the title sequence starts, and you're you're here and you're in Nazi occupied France, and it starts like a Leone movie. It starts like a spaghetti western where it's just building and building and building and who's coming up the road and why are they scared and what's happening and Leah Sedu is there and like all this stuff is happening and then they get up and then you get a 20-minute conversation uh-huh. between La Petite, the dairy farmer, and and Hans Landa. Yep. Landa. And it it is a, 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 such an amazing performance by Waltz right off the bat. You're just like, who is this guy? Yeah. And how is this the best actor I've ever seen in my life? Can I can I point out some two couple things that happened even yeah. before we get to that yeah. place? One, the two the opening shot is the same opening shot as Unforgiven. Yeah. Almost exactly the same. And it's the same setup as The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which are obviously two huge movies for Tarantino. And then the that score that we hear from Morcone is from a movie called The Big Gun Down. 
<laughs> and the opening notes, the opening signature is Fear Elise, which is Beethoven. Yeah. Right. And it is <laughs> Beethoven, the great Germanic composer, yeah. arriving into yeah. a small village yeah. just like Landa. Like that is – all of those choices are very intentional. You're meant to feel like we're arriving at a Western. As you said at the top of the show, Chris, is shot just like a Western. It's all – Grand vistas and and forward motion uh-huh. and anxiety and face to face encounters. That's what Western is, right? Right. And then you get basically a Sherlock Holmes movie, mm-hmm. right? And but it's bookended with that same Western effect of Shoshana literally running toward yeah, the which horizon. Is the, point. the echo of of even though he hates John Ford, Tarantino yes. referencing the totally. searchers, yep. and John Wayne being on the outsider in the doorframe in the searchers, and in this, yep. he's using that to say. For Jews in Europe in the early 40s, this was you were just always an outsider. You were yeah. always on the run. You were trying, to, trying escape. to escape. Yes. yes. And yeah. the, the door frame serves as a framing of this, this painting, this movie poster yeah. for what's about to unfold as yes. she runs toward her cinema um, and Operation Kino. You know, we make a lot of fun of accents and stuff like that in this, in this podcast and in all of our podcasts. We joke around about the Boston accents and the Irish accents and this stuff. Uh, I don't think it's possible to overrate what it was like to start this movie and realize that they were going to really speak the languages that were spoken in, at yeah. this time and in this place, and that they he had found an actor who could speak French, German, and English and act in all three. And Italian. And Italian. Yep. And just blaze through them and take on different characteristics depending on the language he was speaking and how much language is a is a um, a tool of all the characters. I mean, he was saying, like, uh, you know, can we speak English— and then him basically at the end realizing right. they won't know that what I was saying if they're underneath yeah. the floorboards. Well, that was his plan all along. Time. We you, just don't realize right. until the end. Knowing the yeah. entire time that I can speak English in this house. He knows it. But these other the other people here don't know it. Mm-hmm. And I'll be able to talk about them in, open, in the open. Yep. Yeah, and I mentioned that he we, – we can take Waltz for granted now because he's doing a similar thing over and over again. But the moment when he modulates his performance and says, You're sheltering enemies of the state, are you not? Yes. You're sheltering them underneath your floorboards, aren't you? And he removes that friendly, gregarious affectation, and you realize this is the heavy of the movie. Mm-hmm. This is the big bad. It's not Hitler. It's this guy. He's the big bad of the movie. Is It's chilling and shocking and yeah. exciting. It's one of the most memorable introductions to an actor and a character of all time. Yeah, totally. And the two things are happening at once for us. You know, he has one of the things that is so simultaneously, and it feels a little wrong to say, but compelling and also horrifying about watching it is that he has this gregarious nature, you know, asking for a glass of milk. Sure, light up your pipe. You know, I'm just a guest in your home. I'm here to make sure I can make your family's life easier. And then that switch and how quickly and instantly he pivots into this incarnation of horror. It's just unbelievable. And then, you know, when we pan down to the floorboards and to what's happening below where the Dreyfus family is hiding, and then when we pan back up and we can see the eyeballs and we realize what they're watching, even though we will later learn that they can't, understand but they they understand of course they understand what's happening and the suspense of that is you are worried for all of these people who you just met and have no attachment to but you understand instantly the stakes and the gravity of what's unfolding it's just remarkable and then then overwatch shoshona 
you know, the, yes. that line and him going, boop, you know, with yep. the gun and this idea that for him, the pursuit is, is as as gratifying as the actual culmination of the pursuit. You know, getting his prey is almost besides the point. It's mm-hmm. about chasing it down. And it's almost like letting her go to some extent or her getting away just entices him more to, to find her. I think also when we meet him in 1941, we see as the movie progresses and we jump ahead three, four years that he changes. Mm-hmm. You know, when we first meet him, he's like cookie full of arsenic. You know what I mean? It's all sweet exterior. It's all evil on the inside. And then later on in the movie, he changes his perception of the concept of being the Jew hunter. He, he has a different interpretation of himself uh, as he does in the beginning where he takes pride at first. And then by the end of the movie, when he's talking with Aldo and he feels like he's met his equal, he doesn't want to just be known as this, you know, um, this persona. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a honorable man. Do you think that's true, or do you think that's just part of his manipulation? Well, I think that when he gets I, mad at Aldo, because he's like, how? Do you, why would you think that I wouldn't know who you are? You remember because he's oh, like, that, oh, how do you? How that do you guys, mo- the mutual respect yeah. line is like one of the best moments in the movie. But the way to, to Sean's point, the way that early on he is be- boasting about his nickname and how proud he is of it and how he's really earned well, it, and then at the end positioning it as, well, I, you don't control the nick- nicknames people give you. Like I, I always read that as he's just saying what he has to say to, to seal the deal in that moment. Not that that actually reflects a change of conscience for him, but you think it does. I think it shows that he knows that he has to be elusive at all times to maintain mm-hmm. an advantage. And when he's in with Lepidit in the beginning of the film, it's important for him to be overpowering mm-hmm. and to be in charge. Sure. And he has to facilitate himself and negotiate a little bit with Aldo. But even with Aldo, he's still in charge for the most part. And it also indicates the overwhelming bureaucratic and clerical tyranny of the Germans at that time. They were taking names. They were making lists. They were making, you know, they were, he, his, what's the carrot he dangles in front of him? We won't harass you anymore. Right. You know, I mean, it, it's like that, that was the ger- the German army at the sort of their most fearful height, I guess, in, at that, t- that point in time in France. Uh, do you guys want to talk briefly about uh, Mike Myers <laughs> showing sure. up in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I just love the, the the work of imagination that that is to yeah. have Rod Taylor playing Winston Churchill <laughs> and Coming Mike out of Myers, who uh, you know Mike Myers playing a a military attaché and the, the the Scotch in the Globe, the balls in the Globe, the balls in the Globe, and uh, you know just Fassbender talking to Mike Myers about Pabst and. Uh, Selznick and Louis B. Mayer, and it's just, it's just what, a, what a fucking amazing idea. <laughs> what should we drink to, sir? Down with Hitler. Uh, yeah, it's all funny. the way down. All the way yeah. down. Yeah. Um, I think it's a weird flex. Yeah, uh, I think Mike. The last ten years of Mike Myers' career is very strange. Yeah, and I I think it's it makes sense if you are incredibly successful and you've gotten to a, to the stage where you don't have to make Austin Powers four. To just say, what I really want to do is just be in a Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter the cost. I'll just do it at whatever he wants me to do. I'll do it. And that's clearly what he did. And he got to spend two days making this movie, and he gets to be a part of this movie for the rest of his life. It's pretty um, neat. What about, let's talk quickly about the Shoshona lunch with Goebbels. <sighs> Amazing scene. Yeah. Wait for the cream. The the strudel scene. Do you want to talk about strudel? No, the strudel looked delicious. I, I, the waiting for the cream is, you know... Obviously, Hans is a monster, but that was good advice. Yeah. Do you putting do you, the cigarette out in the in the cream of the strudel is a, a yeah. Well, it's more, probably the biggest on the nose metaphor in the movie. It's like <laughs> the cigarette on the strudel is fucking Hans. Like that is that's yeah. the arsenic with cook, 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 cookie with arsenic. But yeah. wait, you do you like strudel? 
Uh, sure, it's delicious. Yeah, Chris, you like strudel? I can't say that I like recall eating strudel with, in my life, but I'm sure it's pretty good. I'm not really into a flaky pastry. Oh, I like a flaky pastry. I like a flaky pastry. Yeah, there's a really great moment. We haven't it's talked much well. about Melanie Laurent yet, or or you know, and we will. But she does this thing where when she takes her first bite of the strudel, her eyes kind of mm-hmm. pop, and you it's it's not even said, but I always just assumed like. Her character had not had dessert mm. in like 10 years, you know, like because oh, interesting. of the life that she has had to been forced to live and like the extravagance that she's had to probably like do away with if she ever had any in, in the first place. But the idea of— You don't think they have strudel at the cinema? Well— You don't think don't, she and Marcel are skipping around for strudel? That's a good point. She could possibly be getting like whatever the 1940s French version of milk duds were, but yeah. I just What's felt like— What's the strudel tasty cake I just felt like there was France a moment where like time. you can kind of see her just be like— I never get to do this. You know, I don't get taken to nice lunches. Not that she's letting herself be seduced by it, but there is a moment of like, she's obviously so fucking scared in yes. that scene. Well, and that that is what I love about it so much is that to your point about just watching the, res- the re- like it's reflexive what's yeah. playing out on her face and the, the horror and the terror, her life she knows is on the line in that moment, but it, it, tastes good when it hits your lips and like the pleasure and the pain are kind of always mixed together and that's a big part of what he's focusing on and then you know like one of the even though it's quick one of the most tense moments in the film is when Hans orders her the glass of milk because he's like I know who you are yeah he's been he was drinking milk at the dairy farm right and it's just it is sincerely scary like it's not necessarily a scary movie but that is a scary moment this is a movie of revelations and and laurent and and kruger too that are up there with waltz and it's like i never really had thought of diane kruger in this kind of role and i had never heard of melanie laurent before i saw this movie and they're both remarkable in it tremendous diane kruger to me i think was the the beauty from troy like i don't know if i had seen her really in anything else prior to this the the other thing about that whole sequence, even before Londa comes in, is really good. When yeah. Goebbels Go- and, oh, yeah. and Shoshana are the having French, a conversation. The French poodle? The French translator. <laughs> the translator, the dog, yeah. sitting at that the table the entire time. And Zoller trying to, you know, play both sides. Like, I Should I be worried? Yeah. Yes, ingratiate Goebbels, ingratiate this woman that he likes who doesn't like him, which is this, like, schoolyard romance that he thinks he's having with this woman who really wants him to die. Yes. Like, it's such a such a complex psychological thing that is not difficult to understand which no, is I, I mean, such great storytelling the middle the the sort of middle part of this movie with the 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 tavern operation kino and uh all the stuff that happens in there could just be its own movie we asked could this be a 10 part netflix yes. series by all means oh my god if it's as good as that i would watch it absolutely a 10 part hickox netflix series i would watch a 10 part shoshona netflix series um so what what's the most rewatchable scene for you guys in the end it is really a toss-up between the opening dairy farm sequence and the tavern sequence, but I, when I think about the movie, I think about the Hans introduction first. Okay. So for me, it's it's the dairy farm. It's the opening sequence. I agree with Mallory. Okay, I'm, I, I agree with you guys. I mean, it's ultimately one of the sort of most searing, memorable scenes I've ever seen, so I think we go with that. I do want to glaze a little syrup on Teddy fucking ball game! <laughs> Love that. What's age the best? A uh, couple nominees. Oh just the World War II French resistance, like, vibe. Like, taverns, leather jackets. Melanie Laurent's, like, high-waisted, <laughs> wide-leg pants with a cool sweater. And Do you a- imagine yourself oh, in that, that time? Uh, I find that time. Uh, I, 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 like, love Alan First novels. I love, um, you know, like, literature and film from that era. Like, that kind of 
the romance around that time is very appealing. I think it's also capital R romantic. I'm sure it was not as cool as it seems in some of those books and movies. Yeah, they didn't have cell phones. No, so. yeah, you couldn't check Twitter. <laughs> Stuff You couldn't be Stuff. like, about to get these drink my drink on at Cafe La Luzanne. <laughs> at Bear Jew. At Bear Jew. <laughs> hashtag... King Kong ain't got shit on me. It's impressive yeah. the way the Bear Jew built his brand without social media. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. He it's, really got the word he out. He went viral. <laughs> Hitler is, you know, he Trending. was really spreading the gospel. That should be like his clout score. We was should have a, we should do a, a social media presentation for our staff about you guys think you have clout. You ain't got shit on the Bear Jew. <laughs> if we um, did that for our staff. Maze would definitely just talk about the Bears lineman who everybody called the Bear Jew for a couple of years. Uh, what's age the best? So World War II, France, the resistance, that that just that whole atmosphere, uh, Waltz's performance, mm-hmm. uh, the writing, which I think is in a way timeless, and the music, which is also timeless because it's largely from past Ennio Morcon soundtracks. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? Other than Farm Fresh Dairy and Struggle, Farm which fr- we've already covered at length. Dessert, yeah. Uh, I like the... Normally I normally I don't like this in movies but I find it so seamless and effective in this what do you hear as an exposition technique characters saying what do you hear hmm. what do you hear to another character that just allows the person who's receiving that question to explain th- their identity and purpose yeah. in a way that is clear mechanics in the screenwriting and feels totally seamless. It happens multiple times at the beginning of the movie, and, and I love it. And I think a movie with spies, essentially, need to always be asking for information. Totally. So that's yeah. very that's a great call. I think there's two very, one not so subtle, one very subtle homage to forthcoming work. Mm-hmm. So obviously, his Tarantino's new film is called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France, which was the original title of the movie, appears as chapter one. And then Pitt, later in the film... His one attempt to stand in as another character is as Enzo Gorlami, as we mentioned, an Italian stuntman. Gorlami. Gorlami. And who does Brad Pitt play in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? But a stuntman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's some – nobody goes inside and up his own ass more than Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, he, he has and a once shared, again, everything is about He movies. has a shared universe. Yeah. He just doesn't make that big a deal of it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, also, just the you, – you noted earlier how little uh, of the movie is actually spoken in English, but the way that the actors switch – Either flawlessly between German, French, Italian, English, all the languages that they're supposed to speak, or intentionally don't switch flawlessly because that's the point. Right. That has that is one of the things that has aged the best. Yeah, the for me. language of the writing, I think, in general is like incredible. what's aged the best. What's aged the worst? I really don't have very much here. I got a couple. I have Eli Roth's feel for the game of baseball. <laughs> uh, it's not a a bad swing. But it definitely feels like he learned all the language of, about, like, the baseball vocab, like, phonetically and had no grasp of <laughs> who Teddy Williams was, where Lansdowne Street is. He doesn't seem like a Boston guy mm-hmm. to me. He seems like a New Yorker. Yes, I agree uh, with that. So I just, I had that in there as what's age the worst. Do you guys have any, what's age the worst? I, for me, the the clear winner or loser, however we want to put it, for what's age the worst is, is Fassbender only being in two scenes of the movie. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, he's such a dynamo that it almost feels that feels like one of the things where you're like I must be remembering this incorrectly I forgot that he doesn't show up till the 50th minute yes and is in it for like 17 minutes that's it yeah and every second that he's on screen is totally electric it's kind of brilliant and really ballsy yeah (laughs) because you would assume that is 
Tarantino is making this movie, he can feel how incredible that magic is when Fassbender is on screen. And to have the discipline to say, I'm, I'm killing this guy off and he's only going to have been introduced to us moments before that happened is kind of remarkable. But I, I just, I would have watched 97 hours of him yeah. talk getting a, a, a bottle of whiskey out of a globe. I'd love to see them do something again. <laughs> Me too. I think they... they Fassbender could really use it's it. It's just unbelievable. He needs something like that. Just one thing about Teddy Ballgame in 1941, regardless <laughs> oh my God, of Donnie Donowitz's big New York's point of origin. Weird. No, no, quite the opposite. Um, here's, here's, here's Teddy's slash line that year. Oh, my God. He hit 406. Wasn't yeah. he in the war? Uh, this is right before he enlisted, oh, okay. I think. I think it's his last season before he enlisted. He hit 406, slugged 553, no, excuse me. His on base was five fifty three, and he slugged seven thirty seven. His OPS was twelve eighty seven. What's the super what was his WRC plus? Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, I'm not seeing that here. <laughs> Empty counting stats for Teddy. That being said, Mike Trout can eat shit because <laughs> Teddy Ballgame is here. Um, oh, any other? What's used to worst for you, Sean? Uh, I mean, not re- you know. I I don't. I certainly don't want to get into the like. Could Quentin have made this movie? I, I don't. I don't. I'm not yeah. very interested in all that stuff. It, it's a. It's a. It's a pretty riveting movie. <laughs> There's not a lot that I was like, make this stop. I will say that one scene that you cited, the cat people scene. Um, yeah. Oh, is, did that take you out of it? It's it's too anachronistic for me. And too, like hearing David Bowie's voice in what is otherwise a very clear uh-huh. and consistent tone. Yeah. Um, I, I find a little distracting. I get what he's going for. He's going for this sort of like operatic, expressionistic much more German style yeah, filmmaking. Yeah, it's connecting also, I think, because she talks a lot about the, you know, Fassbender talks about Pabst. She talks about uh, Pabst. She's they're making this connection of like the Germany that existed before the Reich and like the mm-hmm. um, the artistic flourishing that was going on in the 1920s in Germany before before uh, Nazism came in. And then I almost feel like Bowie and knowing that Bowie like worked out of Berlin in the 70s and it's like an extension of the return of the sort of bohemian Germany, but mm-hmm. I, that's like a pretty like far-fetched connection. I think it, it's also like he was like, it would be cool to play cat people right now before <laughs> they kill all the Nazis. I, I do think yeah. in some ways you have to accept that as a point of fact with every Tarantino thing. You know, a lot of people in this movie came out and said, why did you name this movie Inglorious Bastards? Right. Obviously, one, it's an homage to a movie that was released mm-hmm. in the 70s that he loves, but he was just like, this is just something I do. This right. is a Basquiat-esque he, flourish. Yeah. Right. He wouldn't he wouldn't explain why he spelled it differently. Right. Exactly. He's like, I'll yeah. never tell you. I one it's tiny, but in that same general, you know, part of the film. I had the the switch to the slow-mo when Frederick shoots Shoshana. I just don't that's like one of the only bits of actual movie making in the film that I don't like and find cheesy and weird. Also feels like a, a nod to a different kind yeah. of a movie. And the movie is filled with I mean, we could go down the list of movies that he's paying homage to sure. at this movie. I mean, there are literally dozens. Mm-hmm. Uh let's do casting what ifs. This okay. is really fun. This, this is time a rich around. text. Yeah. It is. <laughs> uh Leonardo DiCaprio yep. was uh was supposed to play Hans Landa, and it would have been a very different movie. He would have had to have done <laughs> I think they would have just done the movie in English, obviously. I don't think Leo, for as good as he is, could have learned German and French in time to do it. My guy slept in a carved-out bear. (laughs) (laughs) So who knows how much German he would have taught himself to be Landa. Uh, Michael Fassbender, as we said, also tried out for the Landa part a couple Uh of times and was heartbroken when he didn't get it. He then got a call to say that he got hiccups at the expense of Simon Simon Pegg. Yep. Who chose to do Tintin <laughs> instead of Inglorious Bastards? You want to talk about fucking sliding doors? Very and I, tough. I love Simon yeah. Pegg. Jesus Christ. It's not what you want. Very tough. Very tough. Remember Tintin? No. 
<laughs> that was weird. Adam <laughs> Sandler yeah. was rumored to play the, the bear, bear Jew. Jew. I would have loved it. That would have worked. I would have loved he it. He would have nailed the Teddy yeah. Williams thing. Uh, Nastasha Kinski was uh, initially mm-hmm. going to play Bridget Van Hammersmark, but turned it down, so Kruger got the uh, role. Very different. She's a lot older. Yeah. I is. feel like she's got 10 it or 15 years It would have made sense. She would have been her. more like Marlena Dietrich, yeah. I think, like a kind of aging starlet rather than Ham- Van Hammersmark. Kruger's so fucking good in this movie. Uh, so that's it's really fascinating. Um, the, uh, the one thing I really f- find interesting about Bastards is, I'm sure it's not exactly the case, but it is a generation of actors who grew up on Tarantino. So mm-hmm. uh, Fassbender talks in an interview about he and a bunch of friends put on a stage version of Reservoir Dogs in Ireland, mm-hmm. in Dublin, I think. Wow. And how this was basically the culmination of his entire life. Simon Pegg just talked about sitting alone in a hotel room, anguished about the choice between working <laughs> with Spielberg on a what would seem to be an obvious blockbuster or working with Tarantino on a World War II movie. And, you know, I, I think that everything worked out the way it was supposed to, but it was a really interesting casting what-ifs. Uh, let's do the Dion Waiters award. The only other one I had oh. for that is that I, I read that Tarantino was struggling with whether to cast Melanie Laurent because he thought she was too famous. Yeah, and she was like, I'm not famous. Yeah. yeah, and he really wanted to discover someone new for the part, and she was able to convince him. Thank God. Yeah. I, I, I have a, just a couple more Notable things. One, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't shout this out, given what I know our wives are interested in, for example. Quentin Tarantino met with Pitt at Chateau Miraval in oh, France. That's right. Which is where he lived with Angelina Jolie. Yeah. And uh, they talked about Brad playing the role of Aldo Rain over the course of a night and five bottles of the estate's own Pink Floyd rosé when he accepted <laughs> the role. So I like the idea of that rosé being a critical incredible. factor in yeah. this movie. And that's interesting to me because this is the first time ever that Quentin Tarantino worked with an in-his-prime movie star. Because he's usually rediscovering, like, sort of... He's the underappreciated asset guy. And everything that's happened since is movie star, movie star, movie star. Yeah. If you look at Django, if you look at Hateful Eight, and now especially Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's people who are in their sweet spot Mm -hmm. of, of, of notoriety. And in a way, you could make the case that it was more of a risk for Tarantino to take on Pitt than for Pitt to take on Tarantino. The other thing that is super complicated about this is that this movie was produced and distributed by the Weinstein Company. Yes. Brad Pitt famously declined to work with Weinstein for years and years because he reportedly Harvey propositioned Gwyneth Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. And so Brad Pitt, for whatever reason, he had a blood oath to never work with him, but then he does work with him because he so desperately wants to work with Tarantino for this movie. Bit of a complicated, complicated history. Yeah. Uh, the Dion Waiters Award, it's kind of hard and... Oh, I wait. forgot one thing. This is actually the most interesting thing. I don't know if you guys came across this. <laughs> I don't know how true this is. Maybe this is half-assed internet research and not so much casting what-ifs, but I read an early iteration of the project when Quentin Tarantino first conceived the idea was rumored to include Sylvester Stallone as Aldo Rain, Bruce Willis <laughs> as Donnie Donowitz, and Arnold Schwarzenegger so as Hugo Stiglitz. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I mean, if he was writing it in the <laughs> late 90s, that would be, that would make total sense. Right? Uh, That's wild. Dion Waiters Award is kind of tough this time around. I think Eli Roth yeah. is up there. I, yeah. I don't know if Fassbender counts, you know, because he's, he's, he's got a lot of, a, a little bit of screen time, but a lot of screen time within the little bit of screen time. Right. Uh, Mike Myers, I don't necessarily know if you want to say he does a lot with a little. Rod Taylor, obviously, is Churchill. <laughs> just saying, brief him. <laughs> How is he doing? Uh, I thought those guys were all great. Do you guys have any other Dion Waiters nominees? 
How about my dude, Alexander Felling? Wilhelm, Maximilian's dad. Oh, yeah. He's he great. to carry a really crucial moment. That's right. He's very good. <laughs> I yeah. think, uh, does, uh, my pick is Eli Roth. Is so. Deal in there for Hellstrom? For DM waiters? I think that, that, that might be my vote. Deal. It's e- Eli Roth, I, I think I'm going to go Saul Rubnick with. For a very specific <laughs> reason. Uh, this is a tough one. I'm voting Roth, but you could go a couple different okay. ways. Um, I think also Sylvester Groth is Goebbels. He's really doing a lot with yeah, a little. Yeah, he does. I have him winning another category later on. Okay. So <laughs> I wanna, I'm going to bump this category up. The Saul Rubinek Award for Overacting is named after yes. Saul Rubinek's performance in True Romance, where he plays a character named Lee Donowitz, a movie producer. That means that Eli Roth, not only does he overact in this movie, but he has to win because in this movie, he plays fucking the Donnie, he plays Lee Domowitz's great-grandfather or grand, no, father, His right? father. His father, right. The other bit we'll get to in, in a half ass internet research is the relationships of different Tarantino characters in here. Mm. But yeah, I think we can take Saul Rubinek off the, war, the board. You don't think Sylvester Groth has a, has a case for Saul Rubinek? Um... Not not specifically because of the bylaws. <laughs> Every of the Roth line reading, you know, fuck a duck. Like everything he says in the movie is so goofy. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I but I'm with you. Like I guess I, just the way that that Sylvester Groth begins to to weep in the in the theater after Hitler <laughs> praises nation's pride. It's really stuck with me. They're but they're both. They could really trade. They could flip flop to me for both of those those acting awards. <laughs> um, for half ass and research, mm. there's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've we've mentioned a couple of things. Uh, Hellstrom's King Kong theory is actually Tarantino's from mm-hmm. his interview with Terry Gross. The title card yeah. uh, in the beginning is Tarantino's handwriting. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the script. If you guys get a chance to read the script. There's a lot of little details like where the briefing happens when he says, I want my scalps. When Aldo says, I want my scalps, that takes place in England. Uh, that you, that's, you, you're made aware of that in the screenplay. Hmm. A lot of Aldo stuff is in the screenplay. You find out that his uh, ligature, the, the marks on his neck, yeah. is from a lynching attempt. Um, and that um, he had survived a lynching attempt, a common punishment in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it's also a reference to Tuco from Good, Bad, and the Ugly, which is obviously a huge movie for... Um, for Inglorious Bastards. But there's a lot of stuff in the screenplay that's just little, little like, cool details like that. As I mentioned, there's the relationship between um, Lee Domowitz and Donnie Domowitz. There's also, it's assumed that Aldo is the great-grandfather of Floyd from True Romance. It's, it's, been, it's been suggested. Okay, so amazing. that's just a, an amazing bit. Uh, <laughs> did you guys have any other half-assed internet research you came across? Uh, Eli Roth directed Nation's Pride, the yes. film within the film. Yes. Eli Roth, obviously, in addition to playing the Bear Jew, is a horror director. Director of Hostel, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, there's there's a lot. I mean, the movie that uh, Shoshana is taking down off of the marquee is Henri-Georges Clouseau's Le Corbeau. Yeah. Which is a very famous French film from the 40s that features anti-Nazi messages hidden in the film. Um, I mentioned the Audie Murphy thing. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating to sort of subvert the American ideal of heroism and make that person a Ger- make that a German yeah. soldier. You yeah. know, there's something very clever going on there. I don't know what you guys want to talk about Lillian Harvey and why Goebbels is so mad about Lillian Harvey. There's so much like old yeah. school. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like it's half ass internet research, but it's also like World War II history. Yeah, that's the thing is it's shit. not really yeah. that half assed. So uh when Francesca mentions Lillian Harvey, Goebbels throws a tantrum and screams never to mention that name in his presence. Lillian Harvey had to flee Nazi Germany in nineteen thirty nine after helping Jewish choreographer Jens Keith to escape to Switzerland. Um, Colonel Hans Landa's speech to Lapidique comparing Jewish people to rats is influenced by a real German film 
The Eternal Jew, made by the SS, propaganda team in Poland during World War II. The film was made with the intention of lowering the image of Jews throughout Europe and depicts rats and other animals spreading diseases that would contaminate the Aryan people. So th- there's like a hundred examples of yeah, things like I mean, this throughout this Bridget movie. Bridget von Hammersmark is based somewhat on Zara Leander, who is a Swedish actress, and she was also a Russian spy during World War II. Uh, I mean, there, there's tons and tons of stuff like this. Here's a good one. Actually, this, I'll save this for picking nits. Okay. Oh, oh I don't even have any nits to pick. That's great. Oh, wow. Um, okay, I got so, one more. Okay, hit me Tarantino up. saying that Wal- discovering Walt gave him his movie because oh, he, yeah. he had come to fear that that role was literally unplayable. Yeah, I, th- I, d- oh. I think he was really resistant to the idea of Leo doing like speaking in English with a German accent for two and a half hours. Two things I like about Hickok's is that how literate and literary he is. Uh-huh. So two of his quotes, one of them, Hickok says, Paris when it sizzles, right before that scene ends, which is a lyric from a Cole Porter song, Can uh, Can. Mm-hmm. And mm. he also says, and like the snows of yesteryear gone oh, from yeah. the earth, which is a Jacques Villon poem. Um, you know, that's heady stuff yeah. for a Tarantino movie. And there's no, even though he is always inserting Easter eggs and things like that, um, there's something elevated about everything happening with him. They feel true to the characters, too. Yeah. They do feel true to the yes. characters. We did Saul Rubinek. Uh, the Apex Joey. Mountain? What's that? Well, I was going to do Joey Pants really quickly just because I only had one. I had nothing for this. I have uh, Hellstrom's assistant when he comes and picks up. Uh, this is really niche for me. Mm-hmm. Hellstrom's assistant, like the guy who drives yeah, Hellstrom to go pick up um, Shoshona at the movie theater the first time when he's like, get your ass in the car. Yeah. His driver is Egon Tiedemann from Dark. Which is a big, the young, that's, yeah, got blank stare. So Not familiar. That's all I really got for uh, the Joey Pants Award. It's funny. I feel like everybody who is a Joey Pants is also kind of famous. Yeah. yeah. So like Sam Levine, Paul Rust. Yeah. These people are all. BJ Novak. BJ Novak. All very like sort of recognizable. Yeah. Also, one little fun fact about them is that all of the bastards are also screenwriters. Yeah. Which is a kind of a clever Love Tarantino-esque that. flourish. Um, <laughs> Gosh. I mean, in some ways, like Rod Taylor is a that sure. guy in this movie because sure. you can't really tell who it is, and Joey you haven't Pants seen is Rod usually Taylor. Saved for like the seventh, the guy who's sharing a title card with four other people and is <laughs> and is always in that spot. I think maybe Denis Menoche, the, okay. the uh, La Petite. Okay, I think he's kind of like a mm-hmm. French actor s- of note. Any of the more recent Bond movies or something? Wasn't he? Mm. Didn't he do something like that? Let's look at his his most recent roster. Well, if you're looking at his face and thinking he's familiar, but can't figure out why, he's I guess he is Pants. a that guy. He's yeah. a Joey Pants. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not seeing him. I mean, he's in Assassin's Creed. No. Oh, so he's a, a Fassbender veteran. <laughs> that's right. Uh, okay, so that's the Joey Pants, and we're really only a couple of people. We did Saul Rubinek. Let's do Apex Mountain. Mm-hmm. Well, you're stretching before this. Well, I mean, I th- you're building up to something. This big. is really one. This is a you're scaling the mountain. One thing that we have to talk about. Mountains are a big thing in this movie. Pits Palu. Yeah. Is this Tarantino's funny. Apex Mountain? Oh wow. What does this category mean? What does Apex Mountain mean, Chris? Uh, so I broke my foot yesterday. I have this new <laughs> cast. Mallory's going to put a an Adidas Continental on my foot and then strangle me. Uh, no, it basically means it's this person at the peak of their powers at this point, both commercially and artistically. Strangle me with your bare Jew-hunting hands. <laughs> right? That's the That's the new... Hit me with a truck. I think so. Did you try that one out on Twitter? See how you okay. see yeah. how you, what your ratio is. <laughs> I don't think it can be his apex mountain. Okay, I, I you think Pulp is? I he won the screenplay Oscar at like twenty nine years old after making Pulp Fiction and was the toast of Hollywood and could have done anything in the world that he wanted to mm-hmm. at that moment. Kind of did, and he and he did, and he made Jackie Brown a great film that is 
different. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't think it's his apex moment. Now, that's different from is this his best movie, which is maybe something we should talk about. Right. So I, I think that he makes, he has three phases, uh-huh. essentially. Dogs, Fiction, and Brown, Elmore Leonard Underworld movies. That's phase one. Kill Bill and Grindhouse are martial arts exploitation raised raised to like an art house level. And then the f- the third phase that we're in now is Bastards, Django, Hatefully, and Hollywood, which is this historical revisionism, alternate history, right. he- heavily, heavily, heavily influenced, if not explicitly, Westerns. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have a sentimental attachment to phase one mm-hmm. because it essentially taught me how to understand pop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like phase two, but it's not my favorite. And I think he's just one of the more interesting filmmakers still going. And the fact that he is able to make two and a half hour, incredibly talky movies like the way he's been doing for the last few years. And people are like, yeah, I'm just going to go see this. I'm going to go see the road version of Hateful Eight, you know, in in panoramic (laughs) widescreen Technicolor is, is just remarkable in 2019. Yeah, it's a little bit of a TBD with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, it's a little hard to say where, if that's a phase four for him, or Mm -hmm. if this is a continuation of something, or a throwback, or I don't, I don't, what's your, I don't know if you and I have ever really had a big Tarantino conversation, Mel. I love Tarantino. I think this is my favorite Tarantino movie. I really, really, really love Django, and I I love Pulp Fiction, Mm -hmm. but this is the one that I find myself thinking about the most craving a watch of the most and enjoying the most when I rewatch it. I do think it might be Apex Mountain for Pitt. Yeah, that was the next one. Because, hmm. I mean, look at the... First of all, shout out to Brad Pitt, who, <laughs> in addition to being this last half century's most beautiful person and a very weird guy, mm-hmm. uh, just has extraordinary taste. And always is working with interesting and weird people and always trying to do something new and is probably never ultimately going to get credit for it. And there's obviously this well-known cliche about how he's a character actor trapped in a leading man's body. But at this time, the run-up to this, he basically does Ocean's 13, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Burn After Reading, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and Glorious Bastards in a Row. All of those performances are completely different. Mm-hmm. Some of the best filmmakers alive. All incredible directors. Yeah. All, like, great challenges and all movies that can't happen without him. Yeah. So he's using his powers for good. Not all of them are hits. In fact, Jesse James, famously a bomb. Yeah, right. But is remembered by those who love it as maybe the best moment movie of the century. I don't necessarily feel that way. I think you, I, you I like think it it's very, very I great. I don't think it, yeah. And... After this, he does a lot of great stuff. He does The Tree of Life. He does Moneyball. He does World War Z, Killing Them Softly, 12 Years a Slave, uh-huh. The Counselor. Produces a lot of really good stuff, too. Yes. And and he's obviously still, he's in this new Tarantino movie. He's He hasn't gone anywhere, necessarily. But that period feels like the most significant period of his career since his kind of 90s breakthrough. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're a little bit split on Tarantino. You think no. I think arguably I think no. yes. You think arguably less? No. Uh, no. Okay. I, yeah. Basically, nobody understands Apex Mountain. <laughs> Pitt, yes. Waltz, yes. Kruger, definitely for yes. Waltz. Yeah. Laurent, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. BJ sure. Novak. Mm, it's no. The office for him. No, I think we know the office. office. Yeah. When the when the office residuals hit. Oh yeah. That's the apex. <laughs> uh, all right. Picking nits. Mm-hmm. Got a few. 
Of course. <laughs> Come on. What are they? Oh, you don't have any? You don't want to start? I honestly don't. All right. I, gotta, I have one really big one that I'd like to open with. Okay. Operation Kino. Uh-huh. Do you guys know what Kino means? It is the German word for movie theater. Yeah, for cinema. So that's not a very subtle code name. I agree with you. What I had this written that? down. Uh, your your mission to remove Hitler and the Nazis from planet Earth hinges on executing this plan, which anyone who hears you say Operation Kino is going to be able to figure out. Let's just say OPSEC for the Nazis in this world is not high order because they're just like, let's put everybody important in like a theater the size of like the Bowery Ballroom. You know, yes. like it's just not exactly like really well guarded. It's like they've got Londa and that's it. I don't know. I suspect that there's not a if universe. Any, if any Italian filmmaker can just walk in off the street, how secure is it? Yeah. Yeah, I will say, rewatching the movie, when they let uh, Antonio Margaretti and <laughs> Dominic DeCoco into the theater, I got confused for a second because I was like, wait, why did Wanda let them go in? Yeah. I had forgotten that he was purposefully allowing them to go in to bring the dynamite in to take care of the, the, the Nazi command. So one of uh, that's another... Another nit that I'd like to pick, though, is he has made his decision, okay? Mm-hmm. Though, obviously, the fact that he will follow follow through and kill Bridget in his interrogation of her delays your realization of what's happening there until yes. his ultimate confrontation with, or, or exchange with, uh, with Aldo. What about everybody else who's a part of the security unit? <laughs> what about literally everybody else? There is a massive mountain, getting back to mountains again, a mountain-sized pile of flammable film. Not to mention literal dynamite around people's legs. And when they're walking up the stairs, you can just see it. It's just visible to the naked eye. What's everyone doing? It's the John Hamm picture, but with dynamite. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. So either... There's there's two... Mouse poisoned me now. Yeah, you work blue now. Yeah. You've got, you've got. It's my greatest achievement in life, honestly. You've got, as always, dick on the brain, Chris. (laughs) Uh, You need to salt yourself down with some bleach. Oh, my God. Uh, I think there's two, maybe two explanations to that. One, we're at the end of the war. Uh And uh, things are getting a little loose. Nazis have checked out and they're just not working that hard. High command. That famous rigor that they've been employing throughout this awful death march through Europe has fallen away. Or Mm -hmm. um, the movie's bad. Which do you think it is? I think it's the first one. It's the first one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we can one. get 90 minutes into a rewatch and be like, what if this movie's bad because the Germans didn't have good enough security? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I have a nit. Okay. Okay. So Lieutenant Hickok says prior to the war that he was writing a book about the film director G.W. Pabst, who he described as being German. He's Austrian. Pabst is Austrian. Yeah. Mm. Just like Hitler. What are we doing? Come on, Hickox. Hickox got the cosine from Fennec and Churchill, despite getting a key point wrong about one of the great, quote-unquote, German filmmakers. Yeah. When fact-checkers at The Ringer make mistakes, Sean doesn't then say, brief them. <laughs> That's right. I say, there's the door. That's right. Get me another guy. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Any and here's nits? a photo of John yes. Hamm to go with you. Go ahead. <laughs> um, the, the Maximilian birthday celebration uh-huh. table. Wilhelm and his fellows cannot hear 
She's mumbling. The conversation She's taking place. Speaking quietly. At the next table. They're not at all suspicious when there's a switch to English. The whole setup of the tension for that scene, which again I love, is built on the idea that this could be a trap. And even if it isn't, they are in mortal peril because of the other people in that room. And yet they are freely conducting a conversation with sensitive information with those people next to them, which is one did. And the people next to them don't hear any of it, which is another. It's only when Hellstrom enters the picture that things go awry. And he's entering the picture not because of what they're saying. But because they're they're yelling at Wilhelm. The, the, the confrontation and that strange accent. Yeah. Very weird. <laughs> That's very weird. Wilhelm, <laughs> Wilhelm's drunkenness in that moment is really perfect. Where it's he just like fabulous. forgets. He's just like, your accent is weird. Man. What's up with that? You ever like hit a bottle of peach schnapps at a <laughs> high school party or something? Seriously. That's schnapps, man. Uh, now listen, I have another one and I, I don't want to be insensitive. I have never been shot in the leg and so I don't know what it feels like. I'm sure it's awful. And I yet, am alive! <laughs> <laughs> and yet, my girl Bridget, wound, agony, terror, and all, leaves behind not only her high fashion footwear, <laughs> but a napkin bearing her kiss and her that's signature. That's just movies to me. That ha- like, that's, I thought that was great. I'm like, pick that shit up. What are you doing? The fate of the world is at She's stake. not... A military trained agent. She doesn't really know how to clean Aldo a scene. doesn't do a sweep of the room. I think that that when is he goes they are, in to pick I her think up, they need to get the fuck out th- of that. Dodge. That was my inter- it's interpretation. It's fine ultimately, but I, I felt compelled to raise the point. Now, the thing that I like about that is I just love the Londa as Sherlock Holmes thing. The pipe, sure. the hat, mm-hmm. the uniform, the sort of at this sort of I'm smarter than you affectation. But is it Sherlock Holmes if her name is literally written on the napkin? Well, but that's the thing is that maybe he's not as smart as he thinks he is, too. Or he's like, I have discovered the key clue, <laughs> which says someone's name. Yeah. Um, you know, it's definitely. That to me has like a, the modern version of that is sending a tweet instead of a DM, right? It's just her name is on the napkin and the napkin's on the floor. It's the Ray Allen tweet where he said he got hacked. <laughs> he should've, she should have just gone BVH or something. Yeah. How's Londa's clout score, you think? Oh, boy. Uh, Pretty strong, right? The I think bear he has Jew, like a, the Jew hunter. Yeah, he probably has like a really good story. IG story. Well, you you think his wiki page is strong? Yeah, that's right. He's self-edited. IG story. Uh, any other nits you want to hit? A couple ones. Okay. A couple quick ones. The film, again, as, as noted, is extremely flammable, extremely dangerous, and yet... Nitrate. Shoshana, Emmanuel, and Marcel, when they're trying to, to convince, you know, to, 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 to be the heavies in that moment and convince this guy to develop their movie, they just throw this guy onto basically a bomb. That's their strategy. Strange. And then she's like, I'm going <laughs> to... Just put an axe in your skull <laughs> if you don't do this for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, the, the Hans out of a million math line doesn't make sense. I can't shake Hitler having to get up in the middle of the movie to get his own gum. No one can give Hitler gum. I'm sorry. <laughs> I get gum from you all the time. <laughs> Somebody get Hitler some gum. Yeah. For Christ's sakes. That's the social, that's going to be the pullout from, for social for this one. Mallory, uh, <laughs> why can't Hitler be, someone get Hitler some gum? I'm just, you know, this is a category of the podcast and I'm, I'm taking it seriously, taking the mission seriously. Uh, and my, my only other one that we haven't already covered is, it's odd to me that Shoshana's message in the, in the film is in English. Given the... Yeah, this crossed my mind too. ...nature of the rest of the film, which is largely not in English. Why wouldn't that have been in German or yeah. French? 
feels like a filmic flourish, you know, an effort to make the— Maybe also sleep. hoping that it's propaganda, that people see it. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's definitely a filmic flourish. You right? know, the sort of like—well, um, one, that's it's an obvious homage to The Wizard of Oz. Sure. You know, the smoke mm-hmm. and the, the visage, the light through the smoke yep. and the creating her face, and that is exactly what happens to The Wizard of Oz at the end of The Wizard of Oz. Um, I don't. I don't think he was trying to say something by putting that in English necessarily. I think it was more just like this is the most critical sentiment of the movie. Yes, and it's easier for the audience that and I'm also, intending I mean, it for. Essentially, the victory over Germany was the victory of, of, of like. I mean, while Russia obviously had a huge part to do with it, it it's seen as the victory of of the West, you know, and the victory yeah. of the English speaking world against the Nazis. So I can understand maybe why it was mm-hmm. in that language. Do you think it's also about how Americans are the best filmmakers? Do you think Quentin would abide that? Uh, I don't necessarily think that he would. You think Italians are his favorite? I don't even know if he sees the nationality. The Japanese. A lot of this movie is about, like, how do we define ourselves? You know? That's pretty deep. Um, let's do quotes, because oh. this is going to take oh, a long time. So here's the hard part about, in the same way of doing rewatchable scenes. are you going to do voice work? I was going to do a little bit. Yes. In the same way of doing rewatchable <laughs> scenes is difficult for this movie, because the scenes are 20 minutes long. A lot of these quotes are like a paragraph long. People I mean, speak it's... In yes. pages and pages and pages yes. of dialogue. I it's novelesque. Grabbed in that a few. Way. I did not grab many Lando ones because I don't know how to say them. They're in German, you know. So like, obviously, all, a lot of what he says is amazing. I, I took. A couple. I have I'm mostly just saying, I Hans ones, so that's great. Uh, great. Yeah. So my favorite, possibly Do you speak German. No, I have the uh, one of the amazing things about this movie is that it has subtitles, and so I wrote them down in English. <laughs> oh, you can also just grab them off the internet. You yeah. have to write them down. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Uh, One of your favorite. I interrupted uh, you. We got a German here who wants to die for his country. Oblige him. (laughs) You probably heard we ain't in the prisoner-taking business. We in the killing Nazi business. And cousin, business is a booming. (laughs) Cousin, business is a booming is incredible. On one. That's amazing. Well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking the kings. That's, that is an all-timer. Really is. Ooh, that's a bingo. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> is that the way you say it? That's a bingo. You just say bingo. Bingo! How fun! <laughs> the way that he says that is yeah. so funny. Here's my favorite quote of the movie, which is it, it's weird, but it just it just really jumped out at me this time. Um, it's it's when uh, Land is talking to Lapetine. And he says, "But there are so many places it would never occur uh-huh. to a hawk to hide." However, the reason the Fuhrer has brought me off my Alps in Austria and placed me in French cow country today is because it does occur to me because I'm aware what tremendous feats human beings are capable of once, once they, they abandon dignity, dignity, which yeah. is essentially every war movie. Because war, war is hell and war pushes people beyond any um, conceivable ideas of normative behavior or morals and all these different things. And this is a guy who thinks that's exactly where I live. I can come down off the mountain and I understand what happens to people when, they, when they're pushed past any kind of boundaries that people think that they have. Yeah. Um, I thought that that was it, – it, it hasn't always popped out of me. I remember thinking it was really cool like when I first saw it. But this time around, I was like, fuck, Tarantino. Yeah. Shout that, out to you. That line and the way that he says it is just so supremely unnerving. I had two other lines from Hans from that same conversation to tack on to that. Uh, I love rumors. Facts can be so misleading. Where rumors, true or false, are often revealing. I love that idea. That That's line really reading, too. I love rumors. <laughs> yeah. Only rumors. I love rumors. I have 
facts could be so misleading. Were rumors true or false are often revealing. So, Monsieur Lepadit, what rumors have you heard regarding the Dreyfuses? He's so <laughs> gleeful. Great one. And then in that same conversation, he says, however interesting as the thought may be, it makes not one bit of difference to how you feel. Like, again, this, especially in a movie where propaganda plays such a prominent role, boiling down to its very essence, facts versus rumor or opinion, you know, this movie's fake news moment, basically, is pretty expertly executed. Yeah, yeah. I think so many of the great lines are exchanges, mm-hmm. yeah. and they're not necessarily lines per se, but any the whole encounter between Londa and Aldo is yeah. just the series of heaters, just like the two smartest people in the movie going back and forth, although maybe Shoshana is ultimately the smartest person mm-hmm. in the whole movie. But what's that English saying about shoes and feet, Londa <laughs> says, and then Aldo says, looks like, the shoes on the other, looks like the shoes on the other foot. Yeah, I was just thinking that. And same thing, Pitt's line reading where he's like, mm-hmm. So, so same thing with what he says earlier in the movie, Sarkrat Sandwich. If that patrol were to have any crack shots, that orchard would be a goddamn sniper's delight. So if you ever want to eat a Sarkrat Sandwich again. <laughs> you know, he is like making these elocutionary choices in the movie to capture this, this you know, one quarter Apache Tennessee mountain man. Descendant of Jim Berger. Yeah, yeah. that is so memorable and puts such an exclamation point on every sentence that he says. I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think of what are some of my other favorites. There's, I, I, I've, I've said I'm not sure if game. it's, uh, <laughs> there's a Hitler line. Oh yeah. <laughs> Who and what is a private butt is <laughs> hysterical. So let's just, let's rewind. You're pro Hitler. No, That's what you're saying? She, you, absolutely you want Hitler not. to get gum. When it, someone bring Hitler gum and Hitler great lines. Nope. Yep. Not what I'm saying at all. Just, you know, who and what is a private butts is a very funny line in That's this good. in this very uh, very amusing movie. We already said, but I'm French. We respect directors in our country is perfect. Meta line. Uh, Hickox and Scotch. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good Scotch. Very true. Great yeah. one. Wonderful one. I like when Aldo is talking about Germans liking mountains, and Bridget responds, I don't, I like smoking, drinking, and ordering in restaurants, but I see your point. I was like, that's my life. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy Londa and Yudovich's exchange, too, where Londa says, do you control the nicknames your enemies bestow on you? Aldo the Apache and the Little Man. And Yudovich says, what do you mean, the Little Man? And he says, German's nickname for you. And he says, the German's nickname for me is the Little Man? And he says, as if to make my point, I'm a little surprised how tall you were in real life. I mean, you're a little fellow, but not circus midget little, as your reputation would suggest. Which is really great, great, great humor laced into the end of this movie. Any other ones for you? We already mentioned it earlier, but the the Hans line to Aldo in that same conversation. Lieutenant Aldo, if you don't think I would interrogate every single one of your swastika mark survivors, we simply aren't operating on the level of mutual respect, I assumed. And he seems... So sincerely disappointed. He hurt. He's hurt. Yeah. yeah he's he's hurt. wounded. And the last one for me is, I think this has, Tarantino is famed for his kind of bang endings, but you know something, Yudovich? I think this just might be my masterpiece. You know something, Yudovich? I think this just might be my masterpiece. 
and then cut to black. That was also, I think, one of the reasons, without reading too much into people's thinking at the time, a couple of the reviews of the negative reviews I saw key in on that line, like, how dare you make that decision for me? I'll I'll be the one who judges your work. Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting. I I think he was right. <laughs> you know, I think uh-huh. in, in a yeah. lot of ways it was his masterpiece. Um, I have a hard time honestly understanding critics who would see the movie and and think you know like you mentioned Manola Dargis, who I respect and and was one of my favorite working critics by far, but to think that this movie is boring, I'm confounded by. Yeah, it's also like it. it, it I don't know whether it's it, it speaks to what the climate of film at the time was, or what, I mean, what was like better than this in 2009. I mean, it, if like, it is oh, the Avatar year. But up in the air is good. You know, I mean, I, I know. I, can you imagine seeing Avatar and this and be like, well, Avatar really is just <laughs> interesting. You know, it's like, get the fuck out of here. You know, like. That said, one of the lines of criticism is a candidate for best quote. What is? Which is what? Christopher Hitchens compared it to, quote, sitting in the dark, having a great pot of warm piss emptied <laughs> very slowly over your head. <laughs> <laughs> According to Wikipedia. Yeah. You God, God get, bless the dead. You got to get back into that kind of thing. Like when you get out of like, uh, you know, like you get out of Captain Marvel and you're like, that was like getting pissed on. I reserve all of my overstated melodramatic rantings for Jets, Mets, and Knicks content. Okay. Um, could this work as a 10 episode Netflix yes. show in 2019? Sure. As long oh as Tarantino God. writes and directs it. Who's, uh, the, who's, the, who's the lead character? Or is it anthological? Oh, I think that expands. I uh-huh. think it's just the larger, all the stuff that he got rid of, mm-hmm. all the stuff that he was playing around with, more Hickox, more Bastards. Do you want to get Mussolini in the mix? Or, sure, man. <laughs> Aldo went through Sicily. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It obviously has a connection to Italian cinema. <laughs> yeah. Dominique Coco. De Coco. <laughs> Did we mention Enzo Castellari appearing yeah. in this movie? Enzo Castellari is the director uh-huh. of the original yes. Inglorious Bastards. Uh-huh. In addition to him, Bo Svensson, who is the star of Inglori- the uh-huh. Inglorious Bastards, appears in Nation's Pride. So some good shout-outs to, uh, speaking of the Italians, as Bo, is, Bo Svensson is not any, an Italian. He's Scandinavian. Any unanswerable questions? A few. I have a couple. I, the one that is the most persistent for me is when Londa is having the strudel with Shoshana, and uh-huh. he forgets the last thing he's going to say. Are we meant to feel like... <sighs> Yeah. He does recognize her in some way, or he senses that he is with someone that he has seen before. I have always thought so because of ordering milk. Yeah, the milk. Yeah. I always thought that. I always so think all that's purposeful. I think it, and it was also to what I was saying before about or the Or at least that he revoir, senses something. Or of Shoshona was like, I don't really care if I catch you or not. I and just, so because of that. I always have you in my talons kind of. Yeah. And, and does he not catch her because he is already orchestrating a let's kill the Nazi high command scheme of his own at this premiere. Right. Has, is he already 10 steps ahead on that part mm. of the story? Possibly. Maybe. I, that's really interesting. I've always thought that he, like to your larger point about how many people have recognized that the end is is here by this point, that he's just like, this is my chance to jump ship. It's just yes. hard because like it is an alternative history, so it's hard to apply historical precedent right. to it. Um, it's interesting that he brings up like, I don't want to be in front of a Jewish tribunal at the end of this war. Um and obviously so many Nazis fled to South America and, you know, um, there's even a Jordan Peele show coming about that in, on Amazon soon. So, yeah, it's an interesting hypothetical. That, that's the, the one that sticks out to me. Unanswerable questions are hard to do with a, with a yeah. revisionist history. But I think right? that that moment where he says, oh, I have one more, you know, the, the one more thing, it's just to, to make her exist in this eternal state of fear. Totally. You know, I could come back to ask you and do whatever else I want yeah. at any point in time. Yeah. Um, one of my unanswerable questions that I, I I've – 
it seems like such a strange thing that I've actually wondered every time I've watched this movie if I'm just missing the answer, which might be in the film, is how did Shoshana come to own the cinema? You know, obviously she is assuming a new identity as mm-hmm. Emmanuel, but I don't understand how that has happened in a short span of time. We're talking four years. I mean, it's entirely possible that she may be telling the truth uh, about an aunt and uncle who owned a movie theater and gave it to her. So reportedly, and I don't know if this has been verified by Tarantino, but there was a woman cast as Shoshana's aunt, mm-hmm. the, uh, the actress Maggie Chung, who's a great actress. And they shot sequences with her yeah. as her aunt. I guess they were if flashbacks. Somebody else who also sh- had their stuff was shot and it did, got cut out too, right? Yeah. Was it um, uh, but the if you're, French actress? It was Cloris Leachman. So what I'm seeing here is that Isabelle Hubert was the first choice for Madame Mimu, but scheduling conflicts got in the way. So Quentin Tarantino cast Maggie Chung in the role. The role wound up being cut out of the finished right. film. I take, it, I take it as... You know, documentation of people and and the like, just sort of being able to follow up on who owns what and who's whose cousin and aunt. It was like a little bit more difficult back then, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, digital records. Yeah. And even though they had good archives and stuff, I I, I think that that is actually her movie theater. No, it's hers. But how did she get? How'd she get it? It? Yeah, and if it, and if she if the if that really is her family, then how? Why did she think that was safe to you know have her actual I mean, family, someone who be, could the be connected thing to would her? Be for her to try her. to leave Europe, but I think right. that in the same way that Landa might be plotting against the Germans, she's plotting against the Germans too, mm-hmm. to some extent. Right. It's interesting that she there. doesn't leave France, right? Yeah, and she's yeah. she's not hiding. She's not. She's up there changing the marquee letters. I mean, she's going about her daily life. Sure, under a different identity. Yes, but yes. Uh, who won the movie? Leah Saydu. Waltz. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think you, we don't have to overthink this. No, it's Quentin Tarantino. Hmm. Come on. This, he was, he was in the, in the dark at this point. This, this third wave that you described so elegant, eloquently about the American revisionist Western and reimagining what the great American frontier is. It starts with this movie and this revivified his ability to get a certain amount of money to make his movies, to get movie stars involved in his movies. Um, And it does both things that Tarantino movies do. It discovers a new talent, and it also spotlights great talent. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just it, – it is surviving. I think we we had a conversation when we did The Social Network on the show about the best movie of the last decade, mm-hmm. which I thought was an interesting and somewhat controversial choice that we ultimately landed on The Social Network. This movie is in the, like, of the century conversation yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know how you could be the the author – the sole creator responsible for it and not be the winner of the movie. I think it might, I'm, I'm tending towards it because it's... The perception it's the at the time. the thing that leapt off the screen when I saw it this time. Yeah. Oh, well. yeah. Well, that, that... But for me, also, it's just like... Because we might feel that way about Tarantino, but I think it's hard to... It, it This is a moment where it's hard to ignore the reception for the film. Yeah. yeah. And that many people did not feel that way. But it made money. They're not his movies prior to this were not as successful. Right. I would also say this is still his second highest grossing of all time. Right? He said that Waltz gave him his movie, mm-hmm. and yes. I would just say that it's hard to imagine this movie being what it is without Waltz in it. Mm-hmm. There's only I can only think of one person who could do what he did, and it's him. You know, it's it's hard to imagine if it would yeah, be DiCaprio being like, "Is that a bingo?" Like, and <laughs> kind of doing a weird blood diamond thing. How would he do it? How what would his blood diamond accent be? His blood diamond accent is South African. But I'm, I'm yeah, not, so what, what, how would it sound? <laughs> DiCaprio, South African, doing Hans Landa? Yeah. <laughs> I've been told you have some milk here. 
diplomatic immunity. <laughs> this has been the Inglorious Bastards oh, Rewatchables. God. Thank you to Sean Fennessy. Thank you to Mallory. Thank you to Craig for hanging with us. What's next on the Rewatchables? Can you say? Do I know? <laughs> I know. It's. Is it maybe another Tarantino movie? Should we not spoil what it yeah, is? Yeah, bro. It's Reservoir Dogs. Vudu is a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles to rent or buy, and over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad-supported on-demand service. Enjoy everything from the latest Hollywood blockbusters to your favorite indie films without subscriptions or contracts. You can check up rewatchables classics like Jerry Maguire, possible future rewatchables like Drive or District 9. It's all there. Head to vudu.com slash rewatchables to sign up and start watching today. That's vudu.com slash rewatchables.